0: Hey there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. Due to this, you may experience varying audio levels. Thanks for understanding and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Join me as we explore jobs and industries throughout history and around the world. We'll walk in the shoes of everyday workers, artisans, scientists, teachers, and tradespeople, tracking down how economic systems shape and reshape societies and are shaped by them. What was a typical day for a seamstress during the French Revolution? A hunter-gatherer with maybe a nasty case of myopia? A merchant on the Silk Road? What did they worry about? What skills did they need? What trusty tools? What were they paid, and how were they paid, and how did they fit into society at large? The year is 1346. You're a young merchant setting off on the legendary Silk Road. At this point in your career, you've made a few of these trips. Nothing too far into this sprawling trade network, just one of the shorter legs of the route but a fellow trader just back in your hometown recently fell ill and died from a mysterious illness people have been whispering about. And you'll need to go in his place. You oblige, mostly because you aren't sure you want to stick around while others he came into contact with have gotten sick too. But as the caravan gets on its way, something feels different. This is the longest trip you'll take yet. It's likely to take months. Some of the other traders are much older than you and their experience shows. One wears a belt of at least seven different knives. He must be a guard, you think. One of three hired to protect the caravan as it makes its way along the road. There will be fortresses and oases along the way for brief reprieves, sure, but the sun is hot and the water's known to run out quickly. Other dangers lurk, bandits for a start, violent storms, stinging insects, wild animals, and disease a lot of disease. But you're relying on the profits and rare objects you'll bring home with you, if you live to do so. You'll go, despite the immense challenges you face, because there are wonders to see too, things you've never imagined before. A stunning variety of unfamiliar people and goods, music, words, and ideas from distant lands. You'll marvel at the wealth and poverty along the way. As the caravan heads back onto the road, You take in the horizon and decide, for better or worse, you're ready for the journey ahead. This is Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. I'm here today with a guest who I'm so excited to talk to, um, Jem Deduchu, who's a historian and author of a number of history books. Um, all really thrillingly readable. I couldn't recommend them enough. Um, They range from topics including ancient Rome, the Ottomans, the Napoleonic Wars, the British Empire, and the American presidency, which is always an exciting topic for us Americans. Uh, Jem writes historical fiction too, and um, later in the podcast we'll be able to tell you a little bit more about how to find all of his great works. But for now, Jem, we're going to talk about all sorts of great
1: things, aren't we? absolutely yes
0: well please just tell me a little bit about anything i missed or whatever you'd like our listeners to know about you
1: i guess i'm just one of those people that always has been in love with history I, as long as i can remember it was my favorite subject and i guess one of the things is that you know the more you look at history the more you think boy i bet you couldn't make that stuff up i mean if, if you wrote that down as a novel you would, would you would think you know oh well, no no way that happened.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So you know, I think history. Obviously, we can learn from it. It tells us a lot about the human condition, why the world is the way it is today. You know, all that heavy stuff. But fundamentally, it can be really entertaining too.
0: Right on. I, I'm with you, and I, I'm always amazed. And I have to say, as an historian and and really passionate one myself, just. So sad when people say things like that. So that's part of why we're here. Um, I, I think there are so many great stories, and and sometimes um, either they're just not being told, or I, people don't know where to go and find them. So let's let's help write that wrong, Jim. One one great history story at a time. So what was the Silk Road exactly? For starters, it wasn't actually a road, not a single one, at least. A sprawling network of land and water routes, the Silk Road evolved to eventually link the Far East to Western Europe. It crisscrossed eight million square miles of desert, forest, steppe, and tundra, and was traveled for more than 1,500 years by merchants, scholars, pilgrims, and soldiers. Knowledge and beliefs, innovation and disease, moved along its dusty tracks as surely as the reciprocal trade goods, which would have looked equally exotic to Eastern and Western eyes. Though the Silk Road existed as an international trade network from around 130 B.C. to A.D. 1453, it was only in the late 19th century that this sprawling web was given a name by German geologist Ferdinand von Richthofen, who was incidentally the uncle of the World War I flying ace known as the Red Baron. His name for it, Seidenstrasse, or Silk Roads. stuck. So, Jim, we're here to consider the the, sort of the experience of the Silk Road merchant, these traders and raiders at times, as it seems, and to really kind of drill down to what life would have been like in the day of life of a Silk Road merchant. Could you sort of paint this picture for us?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I'm going to be slightly flippant and say, if you're looking at an average day, it can be summarized in one word, traveling. This is the thing that so many people don't understand about the pre-industrial world. Getting from A to B is really problematic. Uh, And if you're talking about something like the Silk Road, Uh, I mean, it's not like a paved road that went between two different points, but it was a sort of generic trail uh, and had actually various different branches off to sort of different areas of you know different um, populations and you know obviously different sources of of traded goods as well. But by and large, it went roughly from the Middle East into China. Now, uh, I yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I. uh, a couple of years ago, I nearly got a, a commission on a, a TV show where I was going to show how hard it was to to travel this era, era, because this is the same era as you get the Mongols. And whenever people talk about the Mongols, there's this idea of them sweeping across Asia and rampaging Crazy. here and tearing up there. And look, those things happened. But... I don't care how fast your horse is. Your horse cannot gallop for days or even hours on end. And so I was going to travel from basically uh, the capital of modern-day Turkey, Ankara, uh, to to um, a place in Uzbekistan, Uh, and that was on horseback. On horseback, and that was going to take three months. Yeah, and 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 that's you know, and that's the thing. Once you're back to medieval technology or, or ancient technology. As soon as you start going from A to B, it takes time. And, and this is where whenever you see the movies, of course, they're trying to tell you a fun story. But as soon as somebody goes, I'm going off to X city, well, then you'd actually have to pause for maybe a month as they actually went to X city, but that isn't very exciting. So, so yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're going on the Silk Trail, depending where you were, it would not be an exaggeration to say it would take you four or five months to get from one end to the other end. So really a round, uh, a round trip with, with no sort of like catastrophes on the way would probably have taken you about a year. So these journeys were incredibly important. There were regular sort of stopping points. Um, you know, this is where I can. I'm going to ask all your listeners to channel into your sort of real Lawrence of Arabia thing. So we are talking about desert territory. We're talking about camels. Yes, rich people might have rode horses, but horses are rubbish at carrying lots of heavy weight and they're really expensive. So only your aristocrats would uh, or very rich traders would be riding on a horse. Um, Camels or donkeys uh, would be just the good (laughs) pack animals.
0: Yeah. Oh, Nestor the long-eared Christmas donkey actually still kills me. My my children claim that it it uh, scarred them. We don't watch it anymore. All right. Well, well, this is great. Well, let's uh, let's just get back into the heat of the Silk Road, the desert landscapes that you've described to us, and and these entrepôts along the road. Um, So, what what can you do to to sort of help us get into the head of one of these traders? I mean. What does what their day start out like? What, what might they be most worried about when they wake up to the hot sun and the horses are already thirsty and grumpy at 7am?
1: <laughs> I think there's sort of like two areas. Um, uh, one is in their control and one isn't. Uh, obviously, there's the supply issue. Um, the thing about camels is, uh, you know, they're able to ride through deserts um, relatively safely, so you can you, you can get through A to B. A lot of Asia, Central Asia, is actually grass steppe land, which is perfect for oh, horses right. and the Mongols and things okay. like that. But even so, you just need something that can carry the load and just keep plodding, and a camel is very, very good for that. And there are these sort sure. of regular stops. Now they've got different names and different languages, and sort of throwing onto my sort of like Ottoman history here, which is sort of just at the tail end and beyond of the of the Crusader era. Um, you get the the concept of the caravan which is basically a caravan depot, but it's a part hotel part sort of tavern, part sort of resting spot for, your, for the camels and things like that, watering post as well. And there are just hundreds of these dotted everywhere showing how important the trade was for these areas. And, and this is the thing that when right. the Westerners arrived in the East, they didn't get. Because when you look at places like France and England and Germany in the Middle Ages, they were largely agricultural economies. And you do not have okay. to be a geography major to work out that places like Syria are kind of dry and arid. And so yeah. how, how does a place like Damascus earn its money? It's not from agriculture, although it was particularly famous for its lemon groves. But you know, those were the exception to prove the rule. It was from all the trade. Um, Going back a bit before this era, um, there's the remarkably preserved city of Petra in Jordan. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, if you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I know it's got the word crusade in the title. I love Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones movies are great. Of course, there are only three of them, but they're great. Um,
0: (laughs) Don't we wish that were the (laughs) truth.
1: But the history sucks in Indiana Jones movies. I'm terribly yeah. sorry for that. And he is also- oh, there's he, no
0: history. This, that's the ultimate, you know. Society. And he is a
1: terrible archaeologist as well. <laughs> I mean, he's, he is an awesome action yeah. hero, but he, yeah, he yes. sucks at archaeology. Anyway, but the point is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, in the, sort of the high point when they're trying to find the Holy Grail, which literally has nothing to do with the Crusades, uh, they arrive at this amazing ancient city in this canyon. And that's real. That's Petra. And, oh
0: it is so real yeah. and
1: and and the thing is when you start looking at it, it's like how did a complex city exist in basically the middle of nowhere and the answer was because of trade it was a major trade hub for many many centuries and because of its arid environment it was kind of immune to invasion because if you try and march an army across a desert Everyone's going to starve to death or die of thirst. So it was kind of immune from invasion for a very long time. Now, it was actually natural disaster that, uh, that sealed its fate. And because it was so tucked away, that's why it's well preserved. But if you like, it's a monument to the importance of, of international trade.
0: So clearly, Silk Road traffic was encouraged by the economic incentives to travel it. But life for those in the permanent settlements that dotted the Silk Road was shaped equally by the traffic that moved along it. Life on the Silk Road really was a
1: two-way street. No pun intended. You do start seeing the two big hubs of, in Europe of trading power, both in, in Italy. You've got Venice and Genoa, and these two cities were violently opposed to each other. I mean, literally, they had multiple wars against each over, each other over trade. But they um, they spent just as much energy being um, ambassadors and diplomats to various different courts as they did spreading their um, spreading their wares across uh, the the known world. And now that's of,
0: interesting. May yeah. I just ask for a clarifying question, there, Gem? So these trader um, conglomerates, I guess, is that a correct term that I might use in Genoa and Italy? Were they kind of Managing the the puppet strings behind the scenes on on the the trade routes
1: on the Silk Road Well, yes, and no it all depends on how powerful they are, but it's really interesting basically The Pope went to the uh, well the papal envoys went to Venice and said We're gonna have a huge amount of soldiers turning up and we want Venice to supply the ships and Venice went Well, if you want us to build ships rather than build our own trade ships, that's gonna cost us money so we're going to charge X amount of money for X amount of people, and the Pope went, yeah, yeah, not a problem. I'm, of course, paraphrasing here, but the critical thing was not enough Crusaders turned up. So, they were, so
0: essentially, were they, were they asking the Venetians to make ships for the Crusading
1: soldiers, yes. or were they asking to, to, to just sort of lease them? Yeah, I mean, some some invariably would have been leased, but some would literally have been made for this as troop transport, in essence. But even the ones that are being leased, they're not earning okay. the normal revenues of going, you know, plying their trade across the Mediterranean, right, they're sitting in sure. Venice, waiting to pick up these soldiers, go and go to the Middle East. So when not enough crusaders turned up, they didn't have enough money. And Venice went, Ah. well, if you don't have enough money, we kind of own this crusade. So we're not going to go to the Middle East. First of all, we're going to go to a competitor port called Zara in modern day Croatia. And so this crusade attacked Zara, which was a Christian, a Catholic Christian city.
0: Clearly, this business of navigating the Silk Road wasn't a simple matter of moving things or even people from point A to point B. Sometimes the work of God became entangled with more earthly financial matters. Oh, the more things change,
1: yeah, I was going to say there's huge amounts of risks um, go, going on at this point. And weirdly and counterintuitively, I'm going to bring up uh, the Mongols here because when they exploded out of Eastern Asia, across um the the Asian peninsula, I mean, I, I think again, a lot of people don't realize. The Mongol Empire of the 13th century was the second largest empire of all time, only beaten by Britain in the second 20th of century. all time. Second of all time, wow, and it is the I actual yeah, and that's it's the, actually the largest land-based empire. I mean, literally, these guys had a border you could cross uh, basically from Poland to Korea, and that was all Mongol. <gasps> no, and of that's course-
0: amazing to me. And this happened really fast, didn't it? Because the Mongol Empire actually didn't didn't survive all that long. I mean, not compared to sort of say the the British empire, did it?
1: No, I mean, it, it really was, if you sort of look at, you know, who had dominance in each century? You know, there can be no doubt the 20th century was the American century. The 19th right. century was the British century, but the 13th century was the Mongol century. Now, people don't tend to talk about that very much for obvious reasons, but but you are, yes. Yeah, so for the traders or bringing it back to the traders, once this empire had grown, there were no borders and the Mongols had very ah. simple rules. You know, if, if they turned up at a city and you capitulated immediately, Basically, you could keep running yourself, it's just taxes went to the great Khan, they didn't go to the local king. Um, and and it was only, oh, it's only when people resisted that the Mongols carried out these staggering acts of, of violence for several reasons. One, because there's not many Mongols. So if they tried to put a garrison in every single city, you'd run out of Mongols pretty quickly. Um, but secondly, <laughs> um, you know their reputation preceded them. So when they turned up at a city, people went, oh God, I don't want that to happen to us, have everything. But of course, for the traders, it it opened everything up. In um, 1346, in modern day Ukraine, there was a trading town of the Genoese. It was called Kaffa, Caffa, And it was under attack by Janibeg, and his. so he's a Mongol warlord in charge of one of the uh, great hordes, as they sort of carved up there, the Mongols carved up their empire into hordes. They got great names like the, the Golden Horde and the White Horde. And we're not quite sure why they were associated with those colors, but as soon as you say it, it's like, well, that just sounds cool. But anyway, so we got Janibeg <laughs> and his Mongols and they're trying to break into Kaffa uh, and his men are dying in their scores of this virulent disease and so he then throws probably history's most lethal hissy fit because what he does he knows he's he, his men are dying so quickly he's going to lose the siege so he loads up the dead bodies and fires them on catapults into Kaffa so these sort of like these infected Um, remains smashing into roofs and splattering all over roads and of course spreading that infection everywhere. Um, And the people of Kafir, because they were traders, there was constantly people coming in and out of the city, Kafirs on the coast. So, you know, we're talking about the Silk Road and we mentioned camels, but the shipping was also really important. That was another threat as well. A storm could wipe out all your, um, you know, the ships were better than the camels. You could carry more faster in the ships, but all you need is one storm and your entire That's year's right, income was just uh, yes, yeah, yeah. in the bottom of the Black Sea. Sorry about that. Um, so there, there was even the concept in, in places like Venice and Genoa of basic insurance as well. So, uh, you know, the, these sort of like more complex modern things were beginning to develop courtesy of this international trade. But That's yes, so
0: fascinating.
1: It, was these, it was these traders in Caffa who had been there at the time of this infection of, of 1346 who made it to Italy by 1347. And and that's when we start seeing the spread of Black Death, the Great Plague across the whole of Europe. And by 1348, you've got it hitting places like uh, England and Scotland. So um, that we know where it came from. And this is all to do again with both trade and also how the Mongols have spread their influence across the whole of the Asia continent. You heard that right.
0: The Silk Road may have been the conduit for introducing some of the most globally transformative Eastern inventions to the West, paper and gunpowder included, but it was also one of the first vectors for disease on a global level. And I wanted to ask a question, Jim, um, about the business networks and partnerships that were established as part of this Silk Road network. Try to get a sense of how the average trader would have fit in to those systems and to the socioeconomic hierarchy in general.
1: So this is really the start of the middle class. Um, Merchants across the whole of Europe were the middle people. They weren't the peasants and they weren't the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. They were sometimes being mocked as as new money. Quite literally middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, that, that, that's kind of where it, where it comes from. When the Crusades were in that 1095, when the Crusades were first started to be mentioned, everybody wanted to go, but only the rich could go on crusade. It was an expensive business. Um, to give you an idea, uh, on that first crusade, uh, the Duke of Normandy, who was called Robert, who was the brother of the King of England, uh, William II, he mortgaged the whole of Normandy to pay for his trip. Oh, I
0: saw that in your book. That absolutely staggered me.
1: Yeah, that's how much money it costs to go on crusade. Um, But going back to Venice, okay, they might've had the Jews on one island, but the other thing about these traders were secrets because there was real power in some of this stuff. Um, so this is before the Crusades, but silk. Silk—the uh, the invention of silk as a textile comes from China, and silk is an amazing material. It's incredibly strong. Obviously, it's beautiful and so uh, so smooth and soft. Very
0: lightweight, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's got all these. It's incredibly durable. To, it's, it's great. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I don't have shares in silk for the record, but. But for about a thousand years, it was a closely guarded secret in China. And if anybody was to give away the secret or indeed be caught leaving China with um, silkworms, you know, in their cocoons to perhaps be bred somewhere else, the sentence was death. But even though they managed to, so this was all around about 400 BC when the silk trade started or silk textile started in, in, in China, it managed to get to Constantinople by about the mid 500s. So about 550 AD, so about a thousand years later. But it does show you that some of these traders were willing to put their lives in their, in their hands to turn a profit. So the stuff about how, oh, yeah. you know, the 1%, you know, the scandalous multinationals, no, business has always been like that. Um, and, and it sure
0: has, and I, well, this is making me think. Just as a, as an aside to um, some research that I have done into the English colonies in the New World, the Jamestown colony specifically in Virginia, one of the the major elements of their plan um, in the Virginia Company of London in planting that colony was to try to establish a huge silkworm industry. So they shipped all sorts of silkworms over there and individuals who were very skilled in the raising of silkworms and the creation of silk. And mind you, this is before they had even a tent on the beach and, you know, just sort of didn't even account for all the Native Americans they would be encountering and having to deal with. But you know they got there and and everyone died. I mean this was the first ship, so that this obviously is um, a lesson in profitability that that carried through uh, another well six hundred years from what you're talking. No, thousand years. You're saying from the mid 500s, 1607. something.
1: Yeah. So, well, I mean, it depends where they were. So, I mean, if they were going up to the north places, I mean, we mentioned Cather and Ukraine, they might be getting access to things like amber and furs, things like wolf pelts and things like that. Obviously, if they're going further east, it would be uh, things like uh, the silks. Um, anything from the from the Middle East, um, you, you know, we mentioned briefly, uh, religion keeps cropping up, but you get, um, Jesus gets the uh, gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh and uh, for, spices for a yeah, bit. Yeah, well yeah and it's interesting that you think well gold i get that's expensive what are the other two and it's like but actually uh, but actually myrrh which has been used uh, up to today in very very expensive perfumes it's a very pungent sap um, uh, mm-hmm. and and basically myrrh at times has been worth more in weight than gold so you know and these these things have you know were, were and actually myrrh was uh, going back to petra uh, myrrh was distributed through Petra and so we think was grown in that area as well. So d- no matter where you were, it was all a matter of scarcity and getting this stuff to to the West. For example, pepper pepper is uh, uh pepper was brought to europe by the romans then when the roman empire collapsed in western europe we lost our taste for it but the crusades reinvigorated our taste for it and it stuck after that so again the mm-hmm. crusades have have sort of transferred different things backwards and forwards that things like uh, sort of mathematical concepts from from arabic and uh, you know spices um but then from the west they were getting um sort of like raw materials things like um uh, tin, um, gold was coming up from Africa. Uh, so yeah, so you know these places like Arker, the the last Christian city in in. Um, In the middle in the Middle East was just this epicenter of trade and even though it was surrounded by this sort of like uh, Like this Muslim Empire, which at some point was probably going to attack right even during the final siege They were still trading because they had a port and we need they needed the money so that they could keep fighting the battles But it just shows you that the you know How intrinsic the you know people talk about rivers flowing through lands, but trade was flowing through these lands more often than the rivers were
0: so we keep talking about money. We've talked about money in different ways. Uh, money needed to finance one's crusade and, and then the money that one would get by trading with individuals passing through all of these cities. How was money actually exchanged? Are we talking about piles of coins or was there a credit system developed?
1: so whoever had the the best coinage the best money kind of had the power and um you you quite often get with some sort of medieval coinage that you know literally uh, the the coin worth one pound let's say that Um, a a fun fact here uh, pound sterling the the British currency is actually the longest running currency that's still used today it dates back to the Anglo-Saxon era so that's pre-crusades and we're still using no wonder they didn't want to go
0: for the euro right (laughs)
1: Oh I'm not going there. Um, but the, 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 but yeah so the point is that the currency quite often the coins themselves I mean you, you you hear the term pieces of eight with pirates because people would clip coins they were actually made out of precious metals as opposed to you right. know your, your dimes right, today. Right. Um, although uh, fun fact for you guys there is more than 1 cent worth of copper in a 1 cent coin. It is uh, the the US government has been wasting I think more than a billion dollars a year just keeping the 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 1 cent coin in production for no apparent reason. People didn't so much care about who was on the coin rather than what's the quality of the coins and certain coinage in certain times, um, sort of like got reputations for being extremely sort of like useful and of course from archaeological points of view it means that you get caches of coins and they might be mamluks or they might be ducats or you know uh, so you know it, it just shows you the different countries not necessarily these people all met each other but you know what the hell's a venetian coin doing in samarkand it's like well it's kind of unsurprising because venetian traders were passing through the area at certain points they might have brought one of their high quality coins and bought Another pack animal while they were there in the middle of Asia. Um, so yeah, I mean yeah, literally they'd be carrying this wealth for them, and of course their their products themselves would be extremely valuable. Uh, and the further they went from the source, the more valuable they ultimately were. That's that's the, the the name of the game when it comes to trading. So they would have had soldiers with them. They might have had um, a lot of these traders were multilingual, um, but they might have had sort of like local scouts and guides with them as well. Um, and then of course you'd have the sort of the people looking after the pack animals too. And quite frankly, they. They couldn't care less w- what your nationality was. I mean, nationality is kind of an anachronistic term there. You know, you would happily have Muslims rub- rubbing shoulders with Christians and Jews. You know, if it served the purpose of making more money, we're, we're all in it together.
0: Okay, let's just step back a second. People from so many different cultures traversed the Silk Road. But who were these traders exactly? Maybe it's better to ask, who did they need to be? It's pretty clear it took a lot to survive a typical day on the Silk Road. For a start, they needed the right contacts, local knowledge in wildly different places along the way, and considerable upfront cash to provision the journey and pay for protection from the constant threat of ambush. But even all this was not enough to guarantee a trader safe passage, much less economic upside.
1: Everybody was armed in those days, okay? Forget about the U.S. Second Amendment, you know, you you ate with a large knife, okay? You would have a sword. Now, you might And that
0: wasn't just because they didn't have forks. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. at a push, I can also stab you in the face, you know? It's nothing personal. Um, A a trader on the Silk Roads would have been part diplomat, part spy, um, part ambassador part negotiator it, it was a it, it is really interesting they, they would have had money on them and and actually a very old term for a pickpocket is a cut purse because before the invention of pockets, basically a pocket is a purse that's sewn into your trousers. And so people would literally have a little leather pouch on their belt, which, if you had a sharp enough knife knife, you know, snip, snip, and I'm now running away with all your money. Right. So I mean, they would have literally had like, you know, little caskets of, of coins and things like that. But of course, just going out with nothing is a wasted journey. The trade went both ways. So they would have picked up stuff that was kind of cheap in the middle east or cheap from europe and marched it way out east and it's like oh, what is this cotton that we don't know
0: right. well and it's not just something that they would need i mean i what i'm brought to mind of that ancient archaeological evidence of the trade in a substance called obsidian which was used to make cutting tool and it didn't cut any better than the local flint but it was it was like having the the iphone Pro 10. It was before anybody else did. It was you had this prestige item, even though it technically was a utilitarian object. So yeah, I can imagine as you're walking along this road, you're seeing all sorts of bright, shiny things and you want to bring some home
1: with you. I do want to just quickly tell you about this one other island on, on in Venice because they recognize with everybody traveling across the world, um, you're not quite sure what people have picked up, as it were. So they specifically had an island where you had to wait 40 days before oh, you could mingle with the quarantine. rest of the...
0: Oh, yes, quarantine.
1: 40 Zero. in Italian is Quaranta. I mean, and that's where we get quarantine so from.
0: There, they, so one, 1, 4 or 14 is nothing. All right. So that's even where the word comes from. Fantastic.
1: So they knew that there were sort of like diseases that could spread. And, and so it does show you how sophisticated, you know, there were literally areas in Venice where they would build the ships. Um, they were areas where they'd make the glass. There were huge storage areas. And indeed, I am going to... Get the number slightly wrong, because again, I don't have it to hand. But when, the, because it was a republic, Venice was not ruled by a king. Theoretically, like the Roman Republic, anybody could be, get, become the doge, the leader of, of Venice, and you'd only be there for a time. Obviously, power, corruption, money, all that stuff got into it. But hey, compared to the kings of Europe, it was slightly more, you know, uh, flexible, shall we say. Um, but yeah, so when the republic finally went, uh, sort of like wrapped up, they had more than 20 miles of records and data of 20 you know, so miles, miles of books um, just showing how they recorded pretty much every transaction because it was that important to them. You know, how are our, how are our uh, you know, trading missions going in the middle of Asia? You know, I don't know. It's not an acceptable answer. It's like, well, this is how much was sent out. This is how much came back. You know, they could work out profits and, and losses to it.
0: Okay. We've gotten a pretty good idea about how this sprawling medieval trade system worked overall. And we've heard a bit about the individual trader and what he needed to do to make it on the Silk Road. But let's drill down even further to consider the smallest elements of the system. What was it like for the local mom and pops who were essentially sedentary cogs in the largest moving global trade network the world had ever known? How did they run their daily business and get paid? And what happened when traffic just dried up? For example, when something awful came along, like a war or a devastating plague,
1: well, I mean, uh, who, who, were the, uh, you know, who were the traders trading with? Lots of mom and pop organizations. And those sort of caravanserais would invariably have been run by a family. Now, these are the people who don't get talked about much in history. You know, we don't have endless records because they didn't think to write their stories down. But I mean, yes, while we are talking about these sort of weirdly modern concepts of these multinational trade conglomerates, your word, Karen, um, which I think is accurate or fair, um, but yeah, I mean, the vast majority of business across the whole of, of Europe uh, and beyond was, you know, tiny little organizations. And, and indeed, while we've been talking about money, one of my favorite little sort of like facts is obviously there's this thing called inflation. Your, you know, your your average peasant in England in the middle of the Middle Ages, their annual income would have been one pound. But of course, they would have never seen that money. Everything at that at that level would have been bartered coins were almost sure. pointless you know it's like uh, you, you know so sorry karen but uh, i'm gonna say uh, you're a pig farmer i'm uh i'm an iron uh monger. i like pigs. i uh, love you know, bacon that's okay. fine if i, I get one
0: thing i'll take pigs that's yeah bacon. i was
1: gonna say you you know you need a kettle i need to eat you give me a pig i give you a kettle job done and no money has just tray uh, has passed hands and indeed you know it, it, it's it's I, I don't want to get too heavy on this, uh, you know, again, I'm, you know, there's only so much time you go on a podcast, but pre-industry, pre-industry, everybody knew everybody else in the local area. You know, right. you, 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 in an agrarian economy, you were in a tiny little hamlet and there were probably three shops and that was it. And most of the time and people just trading the front. And it's the antithesis to the Silk Road, right? Yeah, Trade yeah. is
0: the antithesis to yeah. this
1: big Ab- Absolutely. Big yeah. You know, truck. your, your shop burnt down, tough you know that that that, that's that's it at that stage um and you get something like the great fire of london in 1666 and you just think about how many businesses will put out will put out of business now the, the the crown rebuilt london but how do you remake your how do you rebuild your economy after that i mean i guess we're a little bit like that right now you know with lockdown and things like that we're not allowed to do the jobs we're normally doing and Uh, And it's sort of like, so what happens afterwards? Well, you know, you're not the first people in history to have faced this problem.
0: So after all this fascinating talk about the, the perils and the pleasures of the Silk Road Trade Network, Jim, do you think you would have made a good Silk Road merchant?
1: So when, uh, look, I have a house in West London and you don't get one of those from writing history books, sadly. I'd love that the amount of revenue I earn from history books does that. So when I'm not being, uh, uh, you know, writing history books, uh, I am actually (laughs) a trainer, a business trainer. I go into companies and show them how to, using this language, trade. And literally right now, uh, I'm not making this up, I'm dealing with a UK client and brokering with them a deal with a Turkish-based company. Uh, funnily enough, I've, I have connections there. But if that isn't Venice, I, you know, a Venetian style, way of doing things, I don't know what is. So I, I think I would I have done okay. I think you would have made
0: it. And do you have a knife in your pocket when you sit down to those meetings? <laughs>
1: Now, actually, if I may, just on that point, so you you mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, I don't just do history, I do historical fiction too. So uh, my most recent book is called, and it links very well to this, it's called And God Watched. And it's about trading in the Crusades. Uh, And um, basically, it's uh, the, the central character is this woman called Maria. She's completely made up. So I mean, look, uh, you know, uh, just for you guys on the podcast, that's a bit anachronistic. But I wanted to, if you like, reinforce because traders weren't soldiers. Their solution wasn't pick up a sword and hit things with it, okay? But if I'd made the if I'd made the, the the central person of the story, let's say, a knight, well, we all know what knights are going to do. But if you add it, the fact that a she's a trader, b she's a woman in a man's world, she's got to use her guile, her cunning, and if you like, she is the voice of reason, surrounded by all these idiot men who just want to pick up a sword and kill things Um, but also as a Venetian trader she wants peace for slightly uh, uh, ulterior motives as well and and if you like so and the thing I I always do in my historical fiction is the the central character is always made up which allows me to put them wherever I want um, right. But, the, but the history is always accurate, okay, there is, uh, there is, uh, I, I don't want to give too much away about it, but the politics around a riot that happened in the city of Arca all really happened, okay, we don't know what everything was said, but the outcomes of it genuinely happened that way. And when there's a siege, and the opening scene is a, is, is a siege, um, it, it unfolded exactly the way I describe it as, okay, um, but so the history is accurate. But with my business hat on, there is literally several scenes where Maria is negotiating deals. And, <laughs> and, and if you want to learn sort of like business best practice, do what Maria does. So it's the only book I've ever done that com- smashes together both sides of my career where it's like this is pretty good business sense, but it's also pretty accurate history. Knock yourselves out.
0: So, Jen, could you? Walk us through um, any kind of social or business networks, partnerships, what have you that a trader can rely on for protection, uh, both in traveling along this very dangerous physical route and participating successfully in the business that it existed to
1: serve depending on how important you were or what your connections were i guess there was always a support network out there for you potentially but of course if you were in you know the middle of cumbria in in england uh you know very sort of like sparsely populated region um which obviously isn't very important in the world of trade either then you were just a mar and par operation sort of scratching a living out of the local population and were very vulnerable for all kinds of reasons so it, it sort of depended on your circumstances
0: Sure. And and I think that that's a really sort of a, a relevant um, way to think about things today. And I'd, I'd love to know, Jem, in what ways you think that trade in the modern age um, is similar to the way it was long ago in these days and places and, and how it's fundamentally
1: different. When we talk about how interconnected the world is today there's no doubt this is the most interconnected it's ever been. And as I sort of started off with journeying in the middle ages or any time before the industrial era, you know, took you months to get between A and B. It was a very scary process traveling from Europe to um, the Americas and back again, you know, up until very, very recently. No doubt. Um, You know, it is almost within living memory, Titanic, you know, that is, you know, in essence, the modern world and yet thousands of people died just trying to get from point A to point B over water. So, um, so, so yes, uh, of course, that's all changed, you know, things now move at the speed of light. Um, But it, I think the, the medieval world was more interconnected than people give it credit for. I think yes. people realise the Roman yes. Empire obviously spread over a lot of space, and clearly that was trading. Well, the, and in, in through the,
0: building the, roads, as it happens. <laughs> it, yes,
1: quite good at that, too, indeed. Um, but the, in the Middle Ages, it was still going on. And, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the Middle East ended up being a hub for everything, be it disease, be it war, be it uh, sh- sharing of ideas, or be it trade.
0: Jim, thank you so much for joining us today to really range over an incredible um, variety of topics that all play into the really kind of unexpected complexity of trade along the Silk Road during the time of the Crusades and, and really all of the very interesting insights into why things are very similar today in some respects, even though they're very different.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. This has been an absolute pleasure. I hope your listeners have learnt a few things. Um, and uh, it's been, yes, uh, absolute pleasure just sort of rambling on about all these weird and wonderful facts.
0: In the days when traders and crusaders traversed the Silk Road, international trade and communication were more challenging than they are today, to say the least. It was on the Silk Road that the peoples of East and West first encountered one another, through trade and conquest, and the subsequent exchange of knowledge, ideas, and beliefs. Today, the old Silk Road is no dead relic. It remains both a vibrant symbol and physical conduit for human experience and ingenuity. But appreciating the connections forged on the Silk Road 2,000 years ago are key to understanding the complexities of our modern interconnected world. As it happens, large portions of the old trade routes are currently under development into a real superhighway linking remote areas of the modern world over land and stretching, as in the past, from China all the way to Europe. Navigated far more quickly, but not all that different really from what a medieval trader faced, standing at one end of an impossibly vast and wondrous microcosm of human life in constant motion. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers, Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger,
1: Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening, and remember to
0: like and subscribe.